0: About who you are. We don't just simply want to see you in Scripture and walk away unaffected. We want to adore you. You are worthy of all adoration. You are the most worthy treasure in all of the universe. That's why that parable and Matthew 13 is so beautiful. When the man finds the treasure hidden in the field, he sells everything to get that field so he can get that treasure. You're better than anything in the world. And yet so often the world clouds our understanding. The world um, stops up our ears, as it were, with sinful fleshly earwax so that we can't hear your voice. We can't see why you are so worthy of our affections. So, Father, this morning, I pray that you would grant us grace. We are undeserving sinners. Anything that we see today that is worthwhile and enables us to love Jesus can only be given because of your grace and goodness, not because of our goodness. We need you. And we ask bold things. We want to see Christ. We want to see him in the text. We want to savor him. We want to love him more than sin. We want to love him more than good things, that we turn into God things because we start to worship them more than we worship you. We want to love you more than anything in the world. And so I pray, Father, that you would show us why your son is worthy of all of that love and affection and adoration. What we say with our lips as we sing, we would live out with our lives this day. God, thank you that you promise to open our eyes so that the light of the gospel can go into our hearts and change us as we behold you. We want to become like you as we behold you. So enable us to do that this day. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's word and turn with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. If, if you are a parent, you have been there before. If you are a child, which all of us are children to some extent, uh, we have been there before, where in the course of everyday normal living, Something happens where you lose track of where your parents are, and it seems like your world is going to come to an end. I know for me it happened when I was in a grocery store. I think I was probably staring at Lucky Charms a little too long, maybe Cocoa Krispies or something. And uh, my mom was on a mission to finish the grocery list, and I was not paying attention or uh, listening. And by the time I turned to look... I was the only one in that aisle of Pop-Tarts and cereal. And for all intents and purposes, I was the only person alive in the world at that moment. I was all alone, abandoned by every living creature. And in those moments when you find your parents, it's like the reunion of a lifetime. I'm saved, I'm safe, I'm secure. It's happened before to us in the reverse where... Uh, we were at a park one time, it was very busy. Parks are very challenging to keep corralling your children. And so we were trying to corral all of our kids, and I was standing behind Ethan, and he was just super excited, looking, should I do swings, monkey bars, slides, what should I do? And just super excited. And for a moment, he forgot that I was behind him, and I could see he was in a panic looking for mom and dad. Where am I? Where are my parents? I'm lost. And he turned and just bumped right into me as he was running to try and go find me. And I said, hey, it's okay, buddy, I'm right here. And he gave me a big hug on my legs and squeezed me and said, I thought thought you were gone. And I thought I was lost. As I was reading through Revelation chapter one, I, I just, I thought of that mental picture that I had in that moment of my son saying, I thought you were gone, you had left and I was lost without you. Can you imagine what the churches in Asia Minor at this time of John writing and Revelation would have felt like? God, you're allowing us to go through suffering. You're allowing us to go through persecution. You're allowing all of these terrible things to happen to us. Have you left us? It looks like you're gone, and it looks like we are lost and we're doomed. And in the middle of that feeling, maybe even John himself, as we're gonna see this morning, Uh, exiled to the island of Patmos, maybe even John himself wondering, where is Jesus? He's going to see a vision of Christ. And instead of grabbing him by the legs and saying, you never left, he's going to fall down at his feet like a dead man. And he's going to wait until Jesus says, don't be afraid. I was dead, but I'm alive. I've conquered your sin. I haven't left you. I've always been here. Let's read these verses together. Revelation chapter one, verses nine through 20. And as we read them, I I want us to be able to pull out over the course of our time together this morning, seven different ways in which Jesus is still at work in his church. He's still here working in the midst of his people. And you'll be able to see these seven ways even as we read. Revelation chapter one, verse nine. I, John your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash, His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and the keys of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Father, we ask you for grace, for strength, to behold our God, as we just sang. We want to adore him, but we need your help to do that. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Give us understanding. Give us the gracious gift of illumination so that we would love Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Seven different ways in which Jesus is at work in his church, in the midst of his people. And before we dive into the seven ways, John is going to give us yet again another introduction. Verse 9, he says, I, John, he uh, calls himself by name. This is the third time he has referenced himself in this opening chapter. He wants us to know this is John writing, and he's writing as a brother and a fellow partaker in the tribulation, the kingdom, and perseverance which are in Jesus Of all the things that he could have said, I, John, and here's his pedigree of of, uh, aspects of who he was in following Jesus. I was Jesus' favorite disciple. I was his best friend, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's who I was. He could have mentioned a a number of things. I was the only one who was at the foot of the cross of the disciples at the crucifixion. I ran to go see Jesus raised from the dead. There are so many things he could have said, but instead he just says, I am your brother And I'm a fellow partaker in what you're going through. I'm going through exactly what you're going through. And he says that he's partaking in three things. Number one, the tribulation. This isn't the tribulation that we're going to think about when we get to the end times portion of the tribulation, the seven-year period of tribulation. This is just suffering and sorrow and difficult trials because of the word of God. Jesus promised this in John chapter 16. In this world, you will have tribulation. 2 Timothy chapter 3, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Acts chapter 14, Paul said, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. They're everywhere. Maybe even you are experiencing some form of tribulation. John says, I'm experiencing it. I know what you're going through. He says, I'm also experiencing the kingdom. Again, not the millennial kingdom that we'll get to in Revelation chapter 20, but the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated at the cross. I am a citizen of that kingdom. I'm not a citizen of Rome. I'm not a citizen of Caesar's kingdom. God owns Caesar's kingdom. So I'm a citizen of God's heavenly kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be taken away, a kingdom that's not of this world. What encouragement that would be to the churches that he's writing to. We're not existing in Rome's kingdom. We're not citizens there ultimately. We're citizens of Christ's kingdom. There is a tribulation yet to come and a kingdom yet to come, but there's also one happening right now. And John says, I'm a part of those. And I'm also a part of the perseverance, which is in Jesus Christ. I'm a part of the perseverance, the steadfastness. God's going to keep us connected to him. He's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. And notice all of these are connected to Jesus. The tribulation, which is in Jesus, the tribulation, the the suffering on account of Jesus, the kingdom that's inaugurated because of Jesus, and the perseverance, which is possible through Jesus. He says, I'm, I'm a part of the family of God experiencing everything you're experiencing. And I'm on the island of Patmos, the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was preaching. Rome told him not to preach. And he said, I can't obey that order. I'm going to obey God. And so they exiled him. They tried to kill him by uh, throwing him into a big vat of boiling oil. And that didn't work for some strange reason. And so they took him out, burns and all, and just said, exile him to Alcatraz for all intents and purposes. It's the Roman Alcatraz. It's 37 miles southwest of Asia Minor. It's in what's known as the Aegean Sea. It's just volcanic rock. Uh, My sister has been there, and she said it was really boring. You you thought, hey, I'm going to go to Patmos. I'm going to go see where uh, Jesus uh, showed the revelation of himself to John. This is going to be so exciting, and it's just a rock. There's nothing there. It's just a volcanic pit. It's eight miles long, it's five miles wide, and it's just the Roman Alcatraz. Uh, John's own niece actually was exiled to another island. They had a bunch of different islands that were scattered around, and they're just prisons. And this prison of volcanic rock and mountains becomes the pulpit from which John is going to share the words and visions that God gives him to the church. Isolated, desolate, bleak used by the Romans to destroy the spirit of their prisoners. That's where John is, and it is here that Jesus is going to reveal himself to John. must have been the harshest of environments for John. He's probably in his 90s. He's probably pretty old at this point, and they're making him do some slave labor, and he just wonders, God, where are you? I wonder if you have asked that question in recent days or weeks. God, I know you're everywhere. You're omnipresent. You're everywhere. But where are you in my suffering? Where are you in my trial? You seem to be distant. You seem to be silent. Maybe like the psalmist, you lament. Why are you far off? I believe that this vision that Jesus gives of himself to John is a vision that we can also receive as just a notification, oh, Jesus is not leaving. He's not departed. He's not fleeing from us. He's right in the midst of us. Verse 10, John says that he was caught up in the spirit. Uh, this is language that Ezekiel uses when he received a vision. This is language that Daniel uses when he received a vision. So it's a transcendent experience. It's beyond human senses. It's not a dream Uh, but it's not full reality. It's some uh, intermediate vision. He's caught up in this vision. Whether or not time completely stands still, uh, we don't know. It's just he's caught up in the spirit to receive this very real vision of what's happening. And it happens on the Lord's day, Sunday. This is why you should never skip a Sunday service because you just never know what's gonna happen, right? We might get caught up in the midst of a Sunday service on the Lord's day. And he hears behind him A loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. And the voice says, write. There's a command right off the bat. Because this voice is so loud, it's so deafening, not not a a beautiful trumpet sound, but just a trumpet blast. I don't know if you've ever been close enough to an orchestra and somebody just goes, "Bant!" it's very loud and it's, whoa, and it kind of startles you and you makes your heart start to race. That's what's happening here where he just hears something instantly and is so caught off guard that instantaneously he's been given a command. He has to be commanded to do something because otherwise he'd just stop dead in his tracks wondering what's going on. And the command is write in a book or a scroll what you see. Send it to the seven churches. John would have known these churches very well. He was the pastor of the church in Ephesus for a while until he was exiled. And this, uh, the, the series of seven churches which we're going to look at in depth in the coming weeks, was a, a postal route. You would actually go. These are in order of the route that you would go on to just deliver mail. You first started Ephesus, then to Smyrna, then Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So he knows these churches well. He loves these churches. And Jesus has something to say to these churches through John. Then he turns, and he turns to see, verse 12, the voice, which is a very interesting statement. I turn to see a voice. He's turning to see who's speaking, who's doing the speaking, the vo- where the voice is coming from. And having turned, he doesn't see a person yet. He's instantly, his eyes are instantly riveted to seven golden lampstands. Seven golden lampstands, which we're told in verse 20, they are the seven churches, the churches that were described earlier listed out in verse 11. These are seven churches, seven golden lampstands represent seven churches, which is really interesting because the light of the glory of God going out into the world is no longer contained in a box called the Ark of the Covenant. It's where it used to be. It's no longer there. It's no longer in the temple with the menorah, just one lampstand. Now, the light of God's glory going through the world is the church. It's many different churches. It's people together, seven different lampstands that are shining brilliantly, displaying the glory of God. In Zechariah chapter 4, we looked at this a few weeks ago. There was one lampstand with lights on it. It was the menorah. But here, that one lampstand has been taken away and seven have been put in its place. The people of God no longer are tied by common ethnicity in Israel. Now it's been given to the entirety of the world. Everybody, everywhere, universally is given the ability to shine forth the glory of God. And the basis of their unity as a church blazing the glory of God in the world is verse 13, in the middle of the lampstands, in their midst, There's one standing. He is the common focus, the common center among all of the lampstands. Verse 13, he is one like a son of man. That word like is incredibly important. It appears 56 times in the book of Revelation. Like, not exactly, but a picture of. It's a representation of something. It's not a description necessarily of strictly God's appearance or Jesus's appearance. It's a a description of who he is. It's a description of what he's doing. So yes, it's something that John has seen, but it's a picture of something bigger, something deeper, something stronger, something more foundational of who Jesus is and what he's doing. And this begins the study here in these verses of the vision of Christ and the seven ways that Jesus is still at work in his church. The first is that Jesus inhabits his church. Jesus inhabits his church. In verse 13, in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. In the middle, not on the outside watching, but in their midst. Like a Son of Man, the the title Son of Man instantly would have made the Jewish listeners go back in their uh, Old Testament understanding to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, which is a messianic title. It's a messianic title. This is the Messiah. And since Jesus is the Messiah, this is Jesus. Notice where he is. He's moving in the midst of his church. He hasn't left us. Bruce Metzger says, Christ is not an absentee landlord. He's there with us. He is working for us. He is, as we're going to celebrate in a couple months at Christmas, he is Emmanuel, God, with us in our midst. And so right off the bat, Jesus wants John to know, don't give up. Don't give up on the churches. Don't give up on what's going on around you. Jesus has not given up on them. He's with them. He's in their midst. He's invested in them. He's dwelling with them. So Jesus is saying, don't don't give up, John. Don't give up. I'm still the head of the church, and the church is still the body. I'm still the shepherd, and the church is the flock. I'm still the vine, and we are the branches. I'm still the foundation. We're the building. I'm still the husband. We're the bride. I'm still there right in your midst. It might feel like I've left, but I haven't. Jesus is the one who dies for the church. Ephesians chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us he lives for the church. 1 John chapter 2 says he defends the church. Revelation 19 says he's going to fight for the church. And Romans 8 says he's going to glorify the church. He is working for us. He inhabits his church. He's in our midst. But number two, not only inhabiting the church, he intercedes for his church. He's in the middle, verse 13, in the middle of the lampstands. And he sees one like a son of man who is clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. He intercedes for his church. The reason why I use that word is because this is a depiction of priestly garments. This is what a priest would wear. The Old Testament is replete with references to what a a priest would wear and what the high priest would wear. It's very interesting, though, because if you were to be a priest in the Old Testament, you had to come from the tribe of Levi. Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi, but he can be a priest because he is greater than what the priest ultimately was pointed to. He is the ultimate fulfillment of interceding on our behalf, being the mediator between God and man. He doesn't have to come from the line of Levi. He's from the line of Judah. He is king and he is priest at the exact same time. He is our great high priest and he's our mediator. Remember in Job chapter 9, Job cries out to God and he says, God, I wish that there were some way I could talk directly to you. I want to bring my case right before you, but I can't just speak to you directly and argue my case. I need an umpire. He calls him an umpire. I need a go between. I need somebody to stand in the way between me and God because I can't address God on my own. I need a mediator. And Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, we have that mediator. There is only one mediator. It is the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The only way we get to God is through Jesus Christ alone. He is the go-between. He's wearing priestly garments. And there's also another interesting aspect. In chapter 15, the angels are described as wearing the exact same outfits, only their robes are a little bit shorter So this tells us not only is this a priestly garment, but it's also authority. It's also majesty and authority. But since Jesus' garment is reaching all the way down, the length of your garment would determine the amount of authority you have. And so Jesus has all priestly authority. He is the one who can determine who's going to make it or not to heaven. He is the one who says, I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to keep holding on to you and I'm never going to let you go. He's the one. And the only reason why we have the promise in Romans chapter eight, verse 31, that nothing can separate us from the love of God because Jesus is interceding for us right now. He's in our midst and he's praying for us and he will never, ever lose his grip on us. Jesus, number one, inhabits his church. Number two, he intercedes for his church. Number three, he purifies his church. He purifies his church. This is probably the most surprising of all of the aspects of Jesus' work in his church. Because the church at this time is suffering. And you would expect to see Jesus to appear as a comforter, a kind, gentle, meek and mild friend, a companion. And yet the way that we see him is terrifying in its judgment. Verse 14 his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. Hair, eyes, and feet His hair is white, like white wool. Again, this is a depiction all the way back in Daniel chapter 7 of God being God. This is a picture of uh, eternality, a picture of divine eternality being the ancient of days. Daniel 7 uh, refers to God as the ancient of days, and he has this head of hair that's white, like white wool. And the word white here is not white as far as like a, a color, like the walls are painted white. It's that brilliant white hot heat that you can't even look at. You need one of those shields to cover your face with, the, uh, with the, the shade over your eyes or else you'd burn your retinas. That's what his hair looks like. It's a symbol of purity. It's a symbol of wisdom. It's a symbol of holiness. And it's a symbol of um, c- complete knowledge of everything that's happening. And that takes us to the second aspect. He has eyes that are like a flame of fire. Again, back in Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, this is a description of God. His eyes are a flame of fire. So all of these are allusions to images that we've already seen if we understood and knew our Hebrew Bibles really well. He has flaming torches where his eyes should be. He has laser vision that penetrates every single human heart. He has holy intelligence. Nothing escapes his sight. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing is secret. As the author of Hebrews says, everything is laid bare before him. So he has a head of hair that's white like wool, which is a picture of God being God, his eternality, his purity, his wisdom, and his holiness. We have eyes that are like a blazing fire, which is his omniscience. He sees everything with blazing purity. And that leads to the third aspect. He has feet that are burnished bronze. This is red hot. This is just being pulled out of a furnace, glowing, pure. This is judgment. Instead of coming to his church to comfort his church first and foremost and judging a pagan world, Jesus shows up to purify his church and then protect it. I just, I find this fascinating. He doesn't show up to comfort and encourage and wrap his arms of love around the church and say, It's okay, I'm here, and I'm never going to leave you. The first thing he says is, Are you even my church? I've come to purify you. More than our safety, Jesus cares about our sanctification. More than our protection, Jesus cares about our purity. And so he has hair like. White wool, holiness and wisdom. He has eyes that are a flame of fire penetrating into our souls. He has burnished bronze feet walking around, burning away anything that is impure. And feet are a picture of when you stood on something, a victory over it. Not only does he tread on his own people to bring judgment and to bring holiness to his people, but these feet are going to ultimately tread on the earth. And bring purity and judgment to the world. Nothing can resist Jesus, and He will burn away everything in His path. Jesus inhabits His church, He intercedes for His church, He purifies His church. Number four, He commands His church. He commands His church. This is at the end of verse 15. His voice was like the sound of many waters. This is a a huge torrent of water just spilling over. This is an enormous waterfall. Try speaking right next to an enormous waterfall. You can't even hear your own voice. Jesus' voice drowns out every other voice. Jesus' voice. This is why we gather together on Sundays, because we preach from the word. We hear the word of God, which is his voice being spoken to us, and it just drowns out all the chaos. It drowns out every other concern. It drowns out every other voice. Any voice that would be telling us to do something that is impure, any voice that would be telling us to do something that is unbiblical or ungodly, his voice says no, and it drowns out every other voice. He commands his church. His voice dominates his church. And when he speaks, we listen. Number five, he also controls his church. Verse 16 In his right hand, he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. The first part of that verse, in his right hand, he held seven stars. Again, the stars we're gonna see are uh, the, the churches and the pastors of the church. He's holding them. The church is in his hands. We sing a song for little kids. He's got the whole world in his hands. He absolutely does. And he has his church in his hands. He controls it. It's very interesting because in the Roman depictions of their own gods, they would usually have their gods holding planets. Some statues you can even look at today that have uh, Roman gods depicted as holding on to their planets. Sometimes they would even give those planets to their children, saying that uh, the universe is so tiny that it fits even in a little baby's hand, a little child's hand. Here, Jesus says, I hold my church. I hold my church, and I'm not letting them go. He's clinging to his people. He hasn't left his church to faulty human leadership. He's going to tell his church, if the leadership is faulty, I'm going to take that lamp out. I'm going to let them go. I'm going to let them be judged. I have my people. Caesar doesn't hold you. Roman gods don't hold you. Jesus does. Jesus does. He controls his church. Number six, he protects his church. So he inhabits his church, he intercedes for his church, he purifies his church, he commands his church, he controls his church, and he protects his church. Out of his mouth comes this sharp two-edged sword. This is the middle of verse 16. He makes war with false teachers. He makes war with cults, with frauds, with fakes, with deceivers. He makes war with our enemies. This is a four-foot-long, huge sword that would just be a, a massive weapon in the hand of somebody who knew how to wield it. This is such a blessing. Brothers and sisters, we're not in a fight on our own. We're not alone in our fighting. In fact, our fighting is really nothing compared to the fighting that God does for us. And if the victory belongs to the Lord, then we can go take the battlefield knowing that Jesus will win the day. The warfare Of God through His Word is at our disposal and is working in His church. Finally, number seven, the seventh aspect of Jesus' work in His church. Number seven, He reflects His glory through His church. Jesus reflects His glory through His church. So He inhabits His church, He intercedes for His church, He purifies His church, He commands His church, He controls His church, He protects His church, and finally, He reflects his glory through his church. This is the end of verse 16. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. And it's shining on the churches. It's shining on the lampstands. I don't know if you remember when we had that eclipse recently. They give you those glasses. You could apparently look at the sun with these glasses and not have your eyes burned. Then there was this this little disclaimer that would say, um, not tested yet or might not work, danger of blindness in your eyes, don't look at the sun while wearing these sun protective shades and And then there were these reports that were coming out of people being blinded because they were wearing the wrong kinds of glasses. And I remember thinking, I really want to look at this eclipse, but I really don't want to damage my eyes. So I just thought, I'm not going to look at the eclipse. You know what? This is one. I'm losing the battle on this one. I'm not going to look at the eclipse. I'll hear it from everybody else, and they will all go blind before I do. So this is really good. I'll make this decision. But I I remember thinking as as I was reading through Revelation 1, Jesus' face is shining like the sun in all of its strength, that the glory of God is radiating in the midst of his people. So much so that you you can't even look at it. It's so bright. It hurts your eyes and it leaves an imprint. If you've ever had the strange misfortune of staring at the sun and then you close your eyes, you can still see the imprint of it. It's because it's doing damage to the back of your eye. There's so many aspects of who Jesus is when his glory fills and permeates the church that leaves us completely changed. We cannot be left unaffected. And his glory shines. Matthew 13, verse 43 says that the faces of the righteous shine like the sun, like him, His glory radiates. Remember the story of Moses. When Moses spoke to God as a a man speaks with a friend, the glory of God was radiated on Moses' face so much that he had to wear a veil to cover his face because it was so bright. This is how we should be living our lives as the church. That God's glory hits us and it changes us and it affects us. And people say, something's different about you. God's glory shines through the church. This is his glory that is the same glory that we saw in Judges. Remember with uh, Samson's parents when Manoah saw the glory of God and he said, well, we're dead. That's it, we're done for. And his wife, who's never mentioned by name, but is definitely the smarter of the two, said, well, he made a promise with us that I was gonna have a child, so that's gonna happen and maybe then we die, but at least that has to happen first. The glory of God shining in the midst of his church. John says, I see it. And his response in verse 17, he can't help but fall down at his feet like a dead man. Most people think when when we see Jesus, we're just going to give him a hug and hang out with him. He's our homeboy. We just, we love talking. I've heard pastors say that before. We've read even... Uh, little excerpts of books where people supposedly go to heaven and come back to tell and they see Jesus looking a certain way and they, hey, high five with Jesus. Guys, this is Jesus' best friend, John. This is his closest companion. This is his best friend. He's known throughout the gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's been a long time since John has seen Jesus, 55, 60 years And John does not say, hey, it's you. He turns and he sees Jesus and he falls down as if he were dead. I mean, so much so that Jesus himself is going to have to say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Is this how we view Jesus? Is he small and compartmentalized and manageable and safe in our mind? Like one day we're going to hang out and play backgammon with Jesus. Just, hey, we're, we're just having fun together. Or is he somebody that you, you literally can't even stay standing up in his presence? My prayer is that he would become to us infinitely larger every time we look at him. My kids are reading through or uh, listening to the audiobook of Prince Caspian. Uh, C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, second book. The kids knew who Aslan was, and in the second book, they see Aslan again. And when they see Aslan again, they say, you're bigger. And Aslan says, no, I'm not. I'm the great lion. I don't grow bigger. But every year you grow older, I look a little bigger. I look a little bigger. I love that. Every year we grow in our faith. The problems of this world start to shrink and God just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's exactly what's happening to John here. He just falls down flat as a dead person. This isn't adoration. Even as we sang earlier, come let us adore him. This isn't even adoration. This is trauma. This is a traumatic experience. I'm going to die. Hit the deck. And Jesus goes to pick him up. He places his right hand on him. I love that in verse 17. He places his right hand on him, the same hand that holds all the churches, right? And he can hold the churches and pick John up at the exact same time. No problem for Jesus. He's got us corporately together and he's got us individually. He knows us by name and he picks him up and he says, do not be afraid. And here's the reason why you don't need to be afraid, John. Well, why is the reason John is afraid? John is afraid Because his eyes, sinful as they are, his mind, sinful as it is, his flesh, corrupt as it is, has just beheld holiness. The the penetrating laser beams into his soul, the white hair and his holiness and purity, the, the burnished bronze feet. He knows this is holiness parading around him, and his eyes have just seen holiness. He knows he is a sinner in the presence of holiness, and he cannot live. He hits the deck. He knows he cannot stand in the presence of holiness. He deserves to die. There's a reason to be afraid in this moment. And yet Jesus says, you don't have to be afraid. Why? Because I am the first and the last. That's a beautiful picture uh, going all the way back again to um, Isaiah. It's used three times. We, We covered this last week. It's used three times in Isaiah, first and last, to speak of God. God is the eternal one. So he says, I'm God. So if you have a problem with sin, I can take care of it. And I did. Verse 18, I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. He's reminding John, you remember John? You saw me crucified. John was at the foot of the cross when Jesus cried out, mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother. John was there at the foot of the cross when Jesus cried out, it is finished. Every single sin you've ever committed is paid in its entirety, paid in full. So though John has every reason and every right to be fearful in the presence of holiness, Jesus says, remember the gospel. I have done away with all of your sin. I died. I'm alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and the keys of Hades. I hold the keys of death, death itself, has no hold on you, and the, the uh, land of death, that's what Hades is, it's, it's where death exists, so death itself, the process of death, can't do anything to harm you, and the place of death, can't do anything to harm you, because I hold the keys, keys is a picture of authority, I own it, I own it, so John, if you're afraid because of your sin, you have reason to be afraid, but I've taken away your sin, Remember 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin. But thanks be to God who has taken away our sins. He's paid them in full, so that sting has been removed. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 11 to Mary and to Martha, "I'm the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me, though he dies, will never die. I own death. I get to say who goes there and who doesn't. I've conquered death. I have authority over it. And you cannot die one minute before I say, and when you die, you're not going to go anywhere that I haven't already gone and haven't already conquered. What an encouragement this must have been to a church that was seeing its members dying on a daily basis through persecution. It says, remember the gospel. Therefore, verse 19, because of who I am, because of what I've done, and because of what you've seen, write. Another command is given, because John is just in a stupor right now. What am I supposed to do? Probably can't even say a word. I'm so uh, blown away by the majesty of Jesus that Jesus has to say, hey, write, come on. You, You have a job to do. Get up and let's get to work. And your job is to write the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things, which verse 19 is an amazing outline of the entirety of the book. Revelation is dealing with the things which have been seen. That's namely chapter 1, the vision of Christ. Write that down. Also write down the things which are, which is chapter 2 through chapter 4 and 5 in the picture of heaven. We have the the seven churches and the picture of heaven and what's happening in in heaven at the moment of Jesus, uh, John writing. So we have the things which are in Revelation 2 and 3. And then in the throne room of heaven in Revelation 4 and 5. And then the things which will take place after that. So past, present, and future. Look at the things you've seen, chapter 1, the vision of Christ. Look at the things and and write them down which are currently happening in the present, chapter 2 through 5. And then let's let's tackle what's going to happen after that, chapter 6 through 22. That's a great outline of the whole book. It says, get back to work. We have to write. We have work to do. And then I just love, this happens a couple times in Revelation. There's a lot of strange symbols in Revelation. There's a lot of things that we're going to have uh, a little bit of a difficulty trying to understand. We can get it from the Old Testament. But sometimes, just every once in a while, Jesus himself tells us, oh, by the way, this is what this symbol means. And here in verse 20, he says, as for the mystery of the seven stars, what are they? What are the seven stars? What are the golden lampstands? Well, let me tell you, the seven stars are the angels. Uh, Another word could be messenger. It's just the Greek word for messenger. Or it could be pastor. Uh, I take the view that it's the pastor, it's the leader of the church. So the stars are the pastors of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus says, I'll tell you exactly what these symbols mean, what your scene means. Now, get back to work and let's start writing. Jesus, in all of his glory, reveals himself to John. And everything John is about to say all begins with this vision of who Jesus is Jesus is the coming judge who possesses all priestly authority, and no enemy will ever rule over him. Jesus is the coming judge who possesses divine eternality and no enemy will ever outlast him. Jesus is the coming judge who possesses penetrating insight. No enemy could ever hide from him or deceive him. He's the coming judge who possesses unstoppable wrath. No enemy will ever be able to resist him. He's the coming judge who possesses fear-inducing speech. No enemy could ever defy him. He's the coming judge who possesses protective ownership, and no enemy could ever overcome him. He's the coming judge who possesses an invisible weapon, and no enemy will ever survive him. And he is the coming judge who possesses conquering glory and no enemy will ever vanquish him. And that is the Jesus that lives and resides and stays in our midst and never leaves us. He's on our side. That judge that is coming to destroy evil and wickedness is on our side. And he is the Lord of the church. So he inhabits the church, he intercedes for the church, he purifies the church, he commands the church, he controls the church, he protects the church, and he reflects his glory through the church. Now you might look at this vision of Jesus and say, man, I would love to see that. I would love to see that. I just want to behold that vision. The amazing reality is that just as this took place for John on the Lord's Day, on a Sunday, every single Lord's Day we gather together and we open the word of God, we get to experience this. Every single Lord's Day that we gather together and we open God's word and God speaks to us, no, it's not a vision, we're not seeing something, but God in his grace is revealing himself to us, verbally, uh, not physically the way that he did with John but it's still a full, complete, majestic, glorious revelation of Christ. We get to experience this every single week. And every single week, Jesus does exactly what he did for John to us. He reminds us as we enter the presence of God and we think, In my sin, in my despicable speech and actions and attitudes last week, there's no way I have any right to be in your presence. And Jesus says, yes, you're right, but I'm the living one. I was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore. And I have made a way for your sin to be done away with and destroyed and for you to be allowed into my presence. Each week, Jesus does this for us. He judges our sin rightly, and he picks us up and he comforts us. He holds us in his hand. He holds CBC in his hand, and he holds me and you individually in his hand, corporately and individually. And he reminds us every week, I I hold the keys of death. I hold the keys of Hades. No one will ever be able to snatch you out of my hands. Brothers and sisters, as we gather around the Lord's Supper this morning, there's there's just no better passage to prepare us for partaking of these elements together because we have we've just gone through everything that John went through. We've seen a vision of Jesus, we've seen his holiness. It's penetrated into our sinfulness. We're terrified of our sin. We want to hide it and we can't. We know we should be judged because of our sin. And we fall down on the ground saying we're not worthy. We are unholy. We can't stand. We deserve to die. And God in his infinite holiness says, yes, you do. But God in his infinite grace and love says, I will do that work for you. I will die your death. I will live out your righteousness. I will make it so that you can stand in my presence and not just fall down like a dead man. You don't have to be afraid anymore. That's what these elements are for. They're not to condemn you condemnation has already happened. And it happened at the cross and it was done away with in the resurrection and therefore there's no condemnation. So if you, as you are preparing to partake of these elements, if you think I have sinned, I'm in trouble, I don't know what I should do, I deserve death, I I can't stand in the presence of God, he's holy, I don't deserve any of this. That's good news because you are taking the first step of rehearsing the gospel. None of us deserves this. We don't don't come to communion on the basis of our deserving. So we come to communion together and we remember our sin is exactly what demands communion happen. We need a sacrifice. We need a substitute. We need somebody to pay our price, to live the life we needed to live, but we never could, to die the death that we deserve and overcome sin and death. We need Christ. So if you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ and you treasure him and you love him, there is no way you love him as you ought to. There's no way that you worship him and follow him as he deserves to be worshipped and followed. So if you think, I can only partake of these elements if I'm perfect, you deny what these elements stand for. We're not looking at perfection last week or last month. We're looking at is there a contrition over sin? Do you hate your sin and wish that you no longer lived in it? Are you longing for the day when Jesus is going to come and take away the entirety of sin forever? And you can come together at this table as a family and individually before the Lord and say, you are the living one who died in my place and no longer is dead, but alive forevermore. Jesus is the only reason that we have to be able to celebrate these elements. And so what I want us to do is I want us to sing. And as we're singing to confirm these realities to our souls, these elements are going to be passed down the aisles. And as they're passed out, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you follow Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you've kept short accounts with each other, and and you know in your heart that you are following Christ, not in perfection at all, but in progression with him. It's it's time to worship him in an amazing way to remind ourselves that he is our perfect substitute. If you don't know that you're saved, if you don't know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, if you don't know that you've bowed the knee to him and surrendered your life to him, uh, as Jesus himself says, uh, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. If you don't know that you've died to yourself and your will has died and Jesus' will lives through you, just let the elements go by. Therefore believers celebrating the work that Jesus has done on the cross. But if you don't know, if you've truly surrendered to Christ, I, can I just plead with you, today is the day to be made right before this amazing sovereign judge. Today's the day to let Him wash away your sins, and to find salvation in His finished work, not in your goodness. So don't leave. Before talking to myself or Sergio, who is up here doing announcements, or Adonis, who was uh, doing our scripture reading and pastoral prayer, don't don't leave until you've made things right with Christ. For the rest of us, now is the time to celebrate. So. As these elements are passed, hold on to them. We'll take them together as a church family. But pray in your heart, even as we're singing, thanking God for his finished work on the cross. God, we thank you so much for your amazing love for us. We thank you for this beautiful vision in Revelation. And Jesus, you are the same. This is you currently And we are like John in your presence, falling down like dead men. We don't deserve to be here. We can't stand in the midst of holiness. And yet we see your nail pierced hands. We see the scars that purchased our redemption. And we hear your voice saying, Stand up, don't be afraid because I died for you. I did the work you could never do, because I love you. Father, may we look to your Son's sacrifice now as we prepare to partake of communion and glory in the fountain that is filled with blood.
1: There is a fountain Filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. lose all. Lose all their guilty stain, and sinners plunge beneath that flood. Lose all.
0: Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood.
1: Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood will never lose its power. Till all the ransom church of God. Power to.
0: The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. A brokenness that you and I deserve because of our sin. And yet he, in his kindness, says, I'll take your punishment. He broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples and He said, as often as you're going to take this, uh, do this in memory of me. This is my body. This is broken for, for you. And Paul reminds us, when we gather and we do this together, we do it remembering. Notice that is the only thing that we have to do in this moment. We just remember what's already been done for us. This isn't given to us as, now let's try harder. Or we need to work in order to partake of this. No, this is remember what's been done for you. And if you know the love that Jesus has given to you, John tells us in 1 John, you can't help but love him back. So let's remember his perfection given to us because his body was broken on the cross as we partake together. Let's remember him. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the, the, the cup of the new covenant, a covenant that Jesus made through his blood on behalf of us who deserve punishment. Isaiah tells us that by his stripes, we are healed. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. It could pay the penalty for sin for a year or so, but it couldn't remove sin. So Jesus, our perfect Passover lamb, says, I will remove it. I'm going to take away its penalty. I'm going to break its power, and one day I'm going to take away its presence. Completely sin gone. said, so this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the sins of many. Again, Paul says, as often as we do it, do it Remembering. Not not going backwards to say, oh, I need to work harder. Not looking forward, well, I need to do something now. But remembering it is finished. Brothers and sisters, it's been paid in full. And so as we drink this cup, remember the cup that Jesus drank, the wrath of God, the cup that he cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane, can you take this from me? He drank that cup completely, to its fullest, no drop left, so that we can drink this cup in its fullest enjoying the glory of God in the gospel. Let's do this in remembrance of him together. And the men are going to come by. And as they come by, they're going to pass out a little basket that you can throw the cups away. But in response... I want to pray, but I want to pray through song. Typically, we would end by praying. I want to pray through song. Most songs are prayers. They're just that. But I want to pray through a song that will take us back to the vision of John, seeing Christ in his purity and his holiness. Let's sing of the holiness of our God together and stand in awe of him as we do. Holy, holy, holy,
1: Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. How merciful. Mighty God in three persons.
0: Blessed. And all God's people said, amen. Blessings on the rest of your Lord's Day as you celebrate the finished work of Jesus Christ. We'll see you Wednesday, Thursday, Friday for small groups. Enjoy fellowship and enjoy glorying in the gospel together. Blessings on the rest of your Lord's Day.